Well, today, Dr. Wiles and I have a conversation about the theology of the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. If you're listening on Sunday, you learned about that, and we'll talk about it a little bit more today. Uh, so we hope you enjoy. Um, once again, I'm Luke Stair, and this is Tell Me More. Well, hello, and welcome to Tell Me More. My name is Luke Stair. I'm filling in for Katie Reed Hodges. We've got Dr. Wiles here today, mm-hmm. off of Missions Month and into Advent. That is right, brother. So, amen. 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 Great Missions Month. It was. It was Great. so good. Awesome. But turn the corner now, you know, and really started the real—really actually starting the church year, even though we're kind of ending the year. But liturgically, this is the beginning of the new of the new year for us. So. Yeah, if you weren't familiar with that, the church has seasons, and right. oh, yeah. <laughs> this is new year for <laughs> us right. in the church. That's right. Um, so it was a great Sunday yeah, celebrating really the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. or communion mm-hmm. or the Eucharist, <laughs> but not the Mass. That's right. <laughs> together. <laughs> you were paying attention. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so— I, I thought we would just do a deep just, dive just into the in. theology because that's what we in. did on Sunday. <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that I think about when I think about these ordinances or sacraments, mm-hmm. uh, I like the way that you talked about the definitions, um, mm-hmm. that this is not a means of grace for us in our theology. Right. Um, that this is sacrament is mystery. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think the definition I've heard that has always resonated with me for sacrament is it's an inward, invisible sign, or it's an outward visible sign, meaning it points to, of an inward, invisible grace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So it's just mm -hmm. something that points to. It's an outward sign Mm -hmm. that points to the invisible grace. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, So but ordinances, sacraments, uh, baptism and Lord's Supper for us, Mm -hmm. can you do these things by yourself? I guess you can, but uh, <laughs> I would say, um, you know, it, it, as I mentioned Sunday morning, when you when you look at how Israel did things, and of course they served as a template for us, if I can say that respectfully, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but that's just the truth. The early Christians were Jews mostly, right. and so they all they had to draw upon was what they experienced, and so they're living this, some of them, depending on where they were in the world, live in a very pagan culture where the temples were arranged a little differently than the one in Jerusalem for them. Um, but if you think about it, they would go to the temple, the ones who lived in Jerusalem or the ones who visited Jerusalem, and you would participate in acts of worship, um, giving, making sacrifices, prayers. I mean, there are all kinds of things they did. But when you think about some of the the religious rituals that they engaged in, those were primarily done at home. The, you know, these feasts and festivals – um, you, you did those at home normally. And um, and so the early church then um, makes this change where these these sacred acts are actually done in community with one another. And so that breaking of bread, um, which could either mean eating, but it could also mean we know it was code language for the Lord's Supper. Right. Um, and then the whole concept of the Lord's Supper and then baptism as well. Those were actually done um, as acts overseen by the body of Christ. So the emphasis shifts, if you will, to more of a community experience. Uh, Even though those early churches were in homes, it wasn't just the family gathered. It was the family of God gathered. And so um, I would say that the Lord's Supper 
and baptism both are to be supervised by, overseen by the church. And so they're not individual acts. They're not things that we do on our own. Um, I guess you could baptize yourself. John Smith did. Yeah, you know? the First Baptist did do that. <laughs> but uh, but he did it in community with the others. He did, so and when he started baptizing other people. <laughs> That's right. But um, but no, I, I think that it's uh, it, it's something that, that actually, to me, it, it celebrates this communal life that we enjoy and and experience and and I think it uh, it also just deepens the reality of the role the church is supposed to play in our lives mm-hmm. so that's why these ordinances to me belong to the church um as I said Sunday morning you know you're right about vocabulary as I, I mentioned this Sunday morning we don't live in the most precise use of vocabulary in history this era we're loose-lipped <laughs> but um but the word sacrament to me I love that word Sacramental. That's a great word. Oh my goodness! You know, it's that it's that holy mystery. You know, when it's like you're on a sacramental journey. Absolutely. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek, that that uh, uh, the word musterion was used often in the in the Greek Old Testament, and then when Jerome translates that into Latin. Well, the word sacramentum is used for the Greek word mysterion, mystery. And so this idea of this sacred, holy mystery, I love that word. But however, in the theological world— Where meanings of words need to be very precise. Yes, and they matter because lives are at stake. (laughs) And uh, so, well, that word came to mean means of grace, a vehicle through which grace is distributed by the church. Well, if you're going to use the word that way in that theologically precise way, then I would I would not use it to refer to what we did Sunday. But if you want to use it in the more generic sense, well, of course, what we did was sacramental. It 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 had a sacramental feel to it. It was a sacred, mysterious act. Um, both baptism that we did perform Sunday and the Lord's Supper. Um, so I'm good with that as long as we are careful with it. So that's why typically we use the word ordinance. It's just an act of the church. You know? And we use the word ordinance because these are things ordained by Christ that's for right. the church to do. Absolutely. So that's where that word comes from. That's right. And and Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, do this in remembrance of me. So we feel like as Christians, we have... We've been ordained by Christ as the body of Christ to engage in those two sacred and I would say mysterious acts of of of, of symbolism, if you will, pointing to something much greater than what we actually performed, you know. Right. So um I feel like on Sunday we just barely scratched the surface <laughs> right. of your PhD in church history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um yeah. Because you know, you think about historically, there are a lot of things that has un- that that you could point to. You could say, well, these kinds of things have united the the church, the body of Christ. I'm talking about the full body of Christ. Things like acts of benevolence and and social justice. Well, you you can find example after example where the church has just come together and said, we need to do this right here. We we have to take care of the of the sick. The widows you know, and the orphans, yes, the offering for Jerusalem, yes, and it, we, on and on. Over and over. I mean, numerous examples. You could point to the Lord's Supper as one example that has unified the church in the sense that we all do it. You know, pick pick a denomination 
you could have gone to any church Sunday morning and taken communion. Quakers. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay, let me back off. Uh, let me back up just a little bit. Um, a little got, bit on the fringe. You have a random group here and there. But generally speaking, um, you have, uh, before William Penn, generally speaking, you can pretty much go anywhere and take the Lord's Supper. So it is unifying in this, or you could observe a baptism. So you could argue that baptism and the Lord's Supper are these two sacred acts that have actually unified the body of Christ. But you would also be hard-pressed to find two more sacred acts that are more divisive in the history of the body right. of Christ, you know, because of the theology around them. And that's what's fascinating to me, um, which we, Sunday morning, I tried to give a, you know, 30,000-foot view of these different views of of the Lord's Supper. And so they can they can be divisive because of these churches. And I think a lot of times, Luke, today in particular, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think this is true, that in today's world, I'm not sure that, the, that there's as much, within the congregations, there's as much doctrinal disagreement about them because I don't, I don't know that a whole lot of <laughs> thought is put into it, if, if I can say it that way. I think it's, that can be fair. You know, and I, I hate to say that, but I think I was it's, a theology professor. It's fair. <laughs> okay. I think that's true. So that's why I felt like it was important. As I was praying about Advent and, and this theme, remember, um, you know, I'm looking in Luke's gospel every time he uses that word, remember. And I just felt compelled to launch the Advent season with an act of remembrance, an active um, expression of our memory, that we're remembering what Christ has done for us. And so one of the things we do is we partake of these elements and enter into the moment, if you will. And um, and so as I prayed about it, I felt the prompting from the Lord, obviously, to go ahead and and just do kind of a doctrinal synopsis yeah. of of how this is actually viewed, um, without necessarily going into why uh, each one of these views is there, but at least somehow hit the high points, if you will, and and do it respectfully, you know, rather than argumentatively. That was what I was trying to pull off because our church is a very diverse church, so we have people maybe listen to our podcast, you know, today. Um, who've come from very different backgrounds and just happened to have landed at First Baptist. We have a lot right. of first-time Baptists at First Baptist. <laughs> so I wanted to be respectful because I think that's the right thing to do anyway. Um, so that's why I tried to cover each one of these. You know, transubstantiation, probably not a word that anybody used Sunday morning before they got to church at our church. I'm just guessing. <laughs> not Probably not. <laughs> and so, uh, But if you think about it, uh, there, what are there? A billion Roman Catholics in the world? I think right. that's right. So maybe it's a stretch to say that a billion people within the Christian family believe this. But but I would say this about most practicing Catholics: at some point in the year, they will attend Mass. Now they may not go every Sunday, and they may not go once a month. But generally speaking, across the Catholic Church, most Roman Catholics will attend a, some kind of worship service at least one time a year. That I think that that's that's pretty safe. Yes. And every time a Roman Catholic attends a church service, they're going to receive the elements, or, or they're going to be in a service where the elements are distributed. Let me or offered. Let me put it that way. So you are um, a billion of us. <laughs> Of the Christian family. Um, to whom all of us in the West 
point to for our theological heritage. Correct. Yeah, they were the they were our uh, cradle. I mean, for Christianity, they they helped um, steward the gospel uh, for Western civilization. Well, so a billion of us <laughs> will embrace this idea of transubstantiation that these elements actually take on the form and the substance, if you will, of the body and the blood of Jesus. And uh, that's why I mentioned that Sunday. It's kind of this Aristotelian reality, this this mysterious pragmatism, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, of, and they would point to Jesus was a human. That's right. But his substance was divine. Correct. It's not that you put the wafer in your mouth and you taste skin. Yeah, that's it's correct. Still, it's still going to taste like a wafer, but its substance is Christ. Christ. That's right. Just like Jesus that's in right. substance was God. Correct. So, and, you know, there's, I mean, philosophically— um, I think you can make that argument. And also, uh, you and I were talking briefly before we started this podcast. I've had people ask me, so Dr. Wiles, you, you, don't, you don't believe God can transform these elements? Well, of course I believe God can. <laughs> right. I believe God can do anything. Okay, He's God. So that's not the point. Um, my question is, does he and why would he? That, that, that's where I live. Um, but that whole idea that when that you know when the the bell is sounded you know and the and the priest makes this pronouncement and and holds up the host well that's a holy moment in that in that worship experience and god is present god is literally present in a way yeah. that he's present nowhere else that's right according then, to catholic theology of course and then all of a sudden now that bread as you like you said it's bread but the substance the, the, the essence of that bread now, it's actually the body of Christ, and that wine is the blood of Christ. And as you know, Luke, I know many people know this, there are some some of the Catholic tradition, you can't even have the the blood. You know, they, they don't trust you with it. You know, you may spill the blood of Christ. Yeah, you, you can't know? hold it. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I'm just saying, you, you, you they may dip the wafer in the in the juice or the wine for you. Some traditions do allow you to drink it, but you, but you you have to be really careful. You're actually handling the very blood of Jesus. So, you know, but the concept there is, the theology underneath that is not just that miracle, it's the reason for that miracle, you know? And now all of a sudden that table becomes an altar because now Christ has been literally sacrificed again, really. And and that's that's the theological commitment that I won't make. Right. And it was the one that Luther didn't want to make either. Absolutely. We're crucifying Christ every week. Right. And that's one of the things he set out to reform, and that led us to consubstantiation. Consubstantiation, which is Luther's um, – and Luke, you've taught theology, so you may know better than I. I've always struggled with Luther's take on this it, because it feels to me like when I, when I actually read Luther, not Lutheran theologians, when I actually read Luther – it sounds like transubstantiation to me. <laughs> it's very similar. Luther <laughs> you know? really tried hard to still be Catholic yeah. at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and particularly, I think, the older he got. But, uh, but this whole idea that Christ surrounds, he's around, he's underneath. The There's elements. no substance change, but Christ right. is there in a way he is not anywhere else right. for and Luther. So, and I, I get that. And, uh, but I think, I think Luther's argument was a good one. We're not sacrificing Christ again. That's that is not what's happening. Once here. was enough. Yeah, and so, but then Calvin and some of his folks who follow him say to Luther, "You're just too. You're just too Catholic. You can't. You can't help yourself. Why do you have to coin another term? There is no need for it. You don't even need to use that word at all. Spiritual presence yeah, is good close enough. enough. And 
but I, I like the idea of the presence of Christ. I mean, I'm not opposed to that per se, Luke. I would say I'm grateful for, again, Calvin's nuance on it. But for me— Ulrich Zwingli is our guy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Zwinglian. I mean, I just believe it's a memorial. I believe it's symbolic. I don't believe it's just a symbol. I would never use the word just. It is a symbol. There's a there's a certain mystery here that's pointing us to something greater than we could ever imagine. Using and I love how Jesus does it. He uses something as common as bread. You know that that was so. It's it's common in the in the world almost everywhere. Almost every culture we know of makes bread. You know. And so, and, and drinks wine. You think about it, crushing grapes and, and this bread, it's almost everywhere. And Jesus can take these very common elements and say, now, here, here's what I want you to think of to me when you take this. Remember me. Remember my body. Remember my blood that's shed for you. It's the new covenant. It's a celebration of this age to come has right. been launched. And so um, it's it's a beautiful, powerful, sacred act. And I tried to capture that yesterday, and I, I had thoughts about how do I help my people not cross over some theological edge, so to speak, but still embrace this memorial view, but live in the mystery of the moment. And that's why I, I, I said not many people actually touch the body of Christ, if you think about it. I mean, in the grand scheme of humanity, and very few people touch the blood of right. Jesus. I mean, now we're down to... I mean, who? Roman soldiers, maybe? Um, I'm, I'm assuming Nicodemus and Joseph. Um, but really not even the women, if you think about it, because by the, by the time they get to the tomb, you know, it's, he's already resurrected. So, um, but, so, okay, it's not the body and blood of Jesus. But you are sitting here in this room with these two elements, contemplating and reflecting on the very body and blood of our Lord. Don't don't let that moment escape you, <laughs> right? You know, and the miracle of it all, the fact that God has become flesh, and that in His real flesh He shed real blood. Well, that to me is that the transformation is happening in the congregant, not in the elements. You know, mm. and so that's what I was trying to capture Sunday, and and um, and it, and I would tell you for me, um, there was just a a profound holiness to it. And as I was standing there in the pulpit, I just couldn't help myself but just think, what a what a great way to launch Advent. To you know, what a great way to to say, okay, we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but why? Right. Well, and I love that you did it for the start of Advent, and from a liturgical perspective, and I'm, maybe you meant this, and maybe you didn't. I'm going to give you credit like you did. <laughs> is in Advent we remember that Christ came, but it's also. A pointing forward. So I, I like the word sign mm-hmm. more than I like symbol because yeah. I think we can lower what a symbol is, but sign has a prophetic, mm-hmm. apocalyptic mm-hmm. in the sense of revelation mm-hmm. kind of overtone. And mm-hmm. so signs in the Bible point backward mm-hmm. and they point forward. Correct. So in Advent, we point backward mm-hmm. to the birth of Christ, but we point forward mm-hmm. to his coming again. Mm-hmm. And in the Lord's Supper, we point back to his death, mm-hmm. but we also point forward to the yeah. banquet when he returns. Right. Which is going to be awesome. You think about it. Oh, awesome. my goodness, yes. You know, when I was uh, years ago, um, I was pastoring a church in Garland, and uh, and I had never heard of this ministry called, in those days, it was called Jews for Jesus. They've changed their name now. But Moishe Rosen was the founder of it, and he was a Jew who had converted to Christ as an adult, a young adult, but as an adult. 
And he he told us the story. Um, we had him on a Sunday night and just let him tell us tell the story of how did this happen to him, you know. And he said that when he was converted to Christ, he really knew hardly anything. But he had um, evidently was a he was a pretty committed. Jew, I think he was Reformed. He wasn't Orthodox, so he was more of an Americanized Jew. If, again, if I say that respectfully, theologically, but but he was faithful. I mean, he was a synagogue attender. It wasn't like he was ethnically Jewish. He was religiously Jewish. But he converted to Christianity to following Jesus. And he said, a friend of his in the church said, um, "Well, we want you to come to church with us this coming Sunday night." And he said, "Okay." He said, "I'm new at all this." I don't really know much. And they said, well, it'll be a great night for you. We're, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And he said, oh, okay. Well, he said, he, in his mind, we're, you know, we're having a feast. He said, so I showed up and I had no idea what cracker. to expect. Yeah. And he said, all of a sudden they passed this thing in front of me and it's a cracker and a little tiny cup. And he said, I thought, so this is what Christians call supper. He said, man, I, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and, uh, but um, he's the one that I heard the very first time say, and then I realized it's just a taste, and that's all it's intended to be. It's just a taste. And I remember sitting there as a pastor thinking, why didn't I ever think of that? I'm sure I've read that, but I've used that ever since when I think about it. It's just a taste of what's to come. And um, and so I'm, I'm so grateful that Jesus just used that moment of the Passover to point us to a, to a great future. You're right, a sign toward the future. And uh, so I, I, the the Lord's Supper is always special to me. I I don't mind. I don't mind the. I'm a memorialist. Okay, so yes, I believe it is symbolic. It's a sign for us. I do believe that, and I believe this. I think my theology is consistent because I say the same thing about baptism. That um, I believe both. I I believe when Jesus said, "This is my body," it's metaphorical language, in my opinion. But I take that based upon my fuller understanding of a lot of things Jesus said. I am the gate, or I'm the door, I'm the bread of heaven. Well, okay, I get it, you know. Um, to me, those are metaphors to help us understand his role, his place. Right. And so that's how I would interpret this as my body. Nino you know, Zwingli and Luther disagreed on that. They had this great meeting in Marburg and, you know. The Did Philip, not end well. Yeah. <laughs> Philip thought he was going to bring the church together and— but you know, Luther and Zwingli just could not come to grips with, with that phrase, you know. And um, and so, as the story goes, Zwingli said, "It's a symbol." And Luther writes on the table in chalk, "This is my body." And then Zwingli stands up and extends his hand and says, "Well, we disagree about this, but let's share fellowship about so many other things." And Luther turned and walked away. So there's kind of that legend, legendary story. Luther was a little bit cantankerous if you're not familiar with church history. Right. So that unshaken hand, so to speak. I think I think there's a merit in as they got older. Now Zwingli ends up getting killed in some battle. So Luther was okay with it. Yeah, they. they, I think they they kind of had a little softening toward each other. But our forebears, as you know, were Zwingli students. The the people who helped influenced this group of English separatists who leave England in the early 1600s and go to Amsterdam. They made a bunch of guys who were descendants of the followers of Zwingli and challenged them to think about these things, about the Lord's Supper, yeah. about baptism, about the nature of the church and all those kinds of things. So I'll admit theologically, my heritage is in Switzerland, not Germany, even though I have a great deal of respect for what Luther did, because maybe you could argue without Luther, there wouldn't have been a Zwingli, perhaps, I don't know. Or maybe there wouldn't have, maybe there wouldn't have been as much influence Right. Maybe it's a better way to put it. Um, but I'm a memorialist. However, if you want to refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, 
I'm fine with that. If you want to call it the Eucharist, this giving of thanks, I'm fine with that. I'll be honest with you, Luke, I would be okay with the word mass if you understood it to mean the idea in Latin, you've been dismissed to serve. But the problem is you can't, I just don't think we can recapture that word. I don't know that we can. <laughs> it's 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 too deeply woven into a certain theological matrix. So I'm okay with that. But I would just not use the word mass for us. I think it's too confusing. If we want to be precise, I typically refer to it as the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul called it. So that's, that's good enough for Paul. Yeah, I'm good with it. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to talk about today as well is there are some groups of Christians within the family of Christ that hold what's called an open table and right. some that hold what's called a closed table. So I've been to a mass mm -hmm. and as a Baptist who has never been Catholic, mm -hmm. I cannot right. partake of the host. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed. Right. Uh, I could fake it and they wouldn't know maybe, right. but oh, yeah. that would be very... Yeah, we're disrespectful. Very disrespectful. Mm -hmm. So, but if I go to an Anglican church, I can. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If you didn't know that, you can mm -hmm. go to an Anglican church and mm -hmm. partake. Mm -hmm. So, why some closed, some open? Right. What are we? Yeah. What do we do? <laughs> we know it's fascinating because you're right. In the Roman Catholic tradition, technically, you should be a baptized Roman Catholic in good standing with the church because it's a means of grace, and so. The church is giving to you in that moment grace. And so in that grace, you need it. You need it for forgiveness of sin, cleansing, because you're constantly in need of that because there's a there's a works-based—technically, Roman Catholics would argue they're not works-based. You but, have to consume grace. But practically— you consume enough grace. <laughs> that's right. So practically, you are. So, so think about—when when you think about discipline, if the church— wants to discipline, the Roman Catholic Church wants to discipline you, well, they will refuse to give you the means of grace. So, for example, that's happening right now in America. Joe Biden is our president, and Joe Biden is a proponent of abortion, where there are some, the U.S. Catholic of Bishop, the U.S., um, um, whatever it's called, Order of Bishops for Roman Catholics, are opposed to abortion. So are, there are some bishops in the Roman Catholic Church in America who say, well, President Biden cannot receive um, the the mass. He can, in other words, he, he can't participate in um, this uh, worship experience and receive the elements because that's a means of grace given to a person who's out of fellowship with the church. It's very controversial. Now, as you probably know, Biden attends numerous churches and receives the the elements. But there are some who have let him know: if you come to our church, we will not extend this because, in their mind, we're we're giving you this is a church part discipline. Of, yes, the grace of God. Well, no, you can't have it. So they won't, it's, it's, it's discipline. You don't have a repentant heart. That's correct. So technically, if you go and receive the elements, you're supposed to be a baptized Catholic in good standing. So, um, but you're right. If you, once you branch a little bit away from Roman Catholicism and Anglicans, I would say would probably be next, if you will, because I think Orthodox is a whole different conversation. It's very different. In the West. Okay. <laughs> Well, you can. You you can go. And even though they border on transubstantiation, you know, Anglican theology kind of struggles a little bit with the whole idea of the of transubstantiation. But regardless, it is open for you. Now, what's fascinating to me is I grew up in a very conservative Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our church practiced what was known as closed communion. And had you told our pastors when I was growing up, you know, that idea actually came from Roman Catholics. That's an interesting concept. They would have 
scandal. Oh, my goodness. There's no, this has nothing to do with Roman Catholic theology. But actually, it was borrowed from Roman Catholic theology because when um, Alexander Campbell arrives in America from Scotland and he starts leading Baptist churches to embrace a, a little different view, if you will, and establishes what he calls the Church of Christ. Um, well, there were Baptists who said, no, wait a minute. There are some things that – there are landmarks that make us Baptist. And this is known as landmarkism. Right. So this is what this is who we are. Put these put these marks down. And so things like um, no alien immersion, in other words – Can't be baptized in a different tradition or even sometimes church. Correct. You had to be baptized by a Baptist minister, period, in a Baptist church. You're right. So – um, that was a landmark. Uh, no women. You could not have women in any kind of position in leadership in the church. But one of the landmarks was closed communion. So in other words, you had to be a member of that particular local church. You couldn't go to a different Baptist church. No, no and take the Lord's Supper. You could not. In fact, our pastor, when I was a little kid, our pastor used to say, our church practiced closed communion. Our pastor would say something like this, we are preparing to to take the Lord's Supper. Those of you who are not members of our church, we want you to know we're grateful that you were here today, and we hope we've made you to feel welcome. We're going to ask you now to go to the foyer of the church, and you can wait until we complete our worship service because the Lord's Supper is for our church members only. Now, a little bit later in my life at my home church, the pastor no longer said that, but here's what he said. He would say, if you're a guest with us today, thank you for coming. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, and we want you to know that the Lord's Supper is only for members of our church. So we're going to ask you kindly to refrain from participating. You may pass the tray, but you may not participate. Well, closed communion. In other words, you had to be a member of our church. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, my dad and a couple of other deacons in the church said, okay, we have got to address these landmark teachings because um, another one was the Baptists were the only true church. Okay, so you could trace Baptists all the way back to Jesus. Ironically, also taken from the Catholics. <laughs> yes, so the whole idea of successionism. And uh, so my dad and a couple other men in the church said to the pastor, we need to take this to the church. And they did. And, um, and the church actually voted in a business meeting. I was there to end the landmarkism in our church. And so I'll never forget. It's a big deal. It was huge. But I'll never forget in that meeting, um, my dad said, um, and back then Billy Graham was, you know, he was the preeminent Baptist preacher in the world. So my dad said, if Billy Graham attended our church today and we were taking the Lord's Supper, the way it stands now, he would not be allowed to receive the Lord's Supper, and I just cannot believe that's right. One of the other deacons said, well, he could take the Lord's Supper, Marvin, my dad's name, he said, if he joined our church today. <laughs> I'll never forget Both that. Are somewhat laughable idea. <laughs> so anyway, but you know what? Our church voted, and um, and so that deacon that said that to my dad, when we voted, he, he stood up and he said, well, the church has voted to end these landmark teachings. And I'll never take the Lord's Supper, you know, mm. for the rest of my life. And he never did. Because to him, we had violated his understanding of the practice of it, you know, the church's protection of it. First Baptist Arlington. Um, 
was this way when I got here, so I didn't I didn't change it uh, or, or alter it in any way. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've given your life to Christ and you have made that decision that that's who you are, and and you have been, we would like for you to have at least been a part of a church, not, not ours necessarily, but someone who's engaged in the, in community. Then you're welcome to the table. It's the Lord's table. So that's I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, we want you to feel welcome if you're a follower of Jesus. And and there are times, you know, I don't do it every time. Uh, occasionally, I will just say, no, you know, Paul said, examine yourself and don't participate unworthily. I don't know full well, Luke, what all that means. Um, I have some Amish friends who think they know. <laughs> yeah, true. And so I'm not sure, but but I think occasionally it's worth giving Paul's. The, you know, the other question I do get asked about the Lord's Supper is, how often are you supposed to take it? You know, what, what's the what's the idea? Is, is is should it happen every single time we gather for worship? Is it okay once a quarter, every other month, or how, what are we supposed to do? Our church, generally speaking, is about every other month historically, at least since I've been here. Not quite quarterly. Sometimes we don't always live up to that, but um, but you know, it's it's around six times a year ish. And I would tell you that for us, um, my take on that would be that for every Sunday to me, but maybe it's because we do have this memorialistic approach to it. Uh, we see it as an act of worship that we can we can build into our into our liturgical calendar, if you will, to provide these meaningful experiences along the way, particularly as we mark different seasons. And so that's why we choose to do it the way we do it. I think that's a that's a great way to be. So, and I love it. I love doing it. I love, I love to see new followers of Jesus who are participating sometimes for the first time. My granddaughter, it was her second time, and so it's exciting. Yeah. So when we got in the car to go home, she was so excited. She was like, "Poppy, this was my second time to take the Lord's Supper," and um, you know, it was very meaningful to her. Well, it was to me. To, to look and see my granddaughter, who I know now is following Jesus and has been baptized as a believer, and she's participating in the sacred acts of the church. Well, may it be so for the rest of her life. That's what I hope mm -hmm. and pray, you know. So, <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> what well. else have we got today, man? You know, <laughs> I mean, I like the, I do like the idea too. I think, Luke, there's a present tense um, celebration. We look behind us. We look ahead of us, but we also celebrate at the Lord's Supper to me. We celebrate some things we hold in common. That's why, to me, the architecture that I talked about Sunday is important. That table is down on the floor with everyone. Everybody is welcomed. It's only recently that I've stayed at the pulpit to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Normally, I'm down on the floor. The reason I do that now is because we, we, we've we tried to uh, utilize more people <laughs> you know, in the serving of it. And so we have the two tables set up now. Um, but the point is, everyone who comes to that table, we all come as sinners. We all come, uh, we have that common denominator. We all need the grace of God. We all need his forgiveness. We've all needed this salvation that Jesus has offered us. We all need this recognition. It's for all of us. And so there's this present sense of community and communion that we have with each other that I think is marked every time we celebrate. Well, and I think the way we celebrate by passing to each other points to another significant Baptist doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, Correct. that it's not just the deacons or the ministers who are serving, but in right. passing the tray to one another, mm -hmm. 
we are actually serving each other the Lord's Supper and aren't just being priests for ourselves, but we're being priests for each other. For your brother and sister, yeah, which is a which I think is sometimes people ask me, why don't we get up and come forward? We do that occasionally, you know, sometimes we'll we'll um have folks come up and and take the elements from the table. I prefer what we did, and some of that's probably my upbringing a little bit, but I like that. I like watching my people, one to another, taking this tray and handing it to a brother or a sister in Christ. And you're right, it's, there's that sense of connectivity and service that it's a beautiful thing to watch. I'm always humbled by it, you know, when I stand there and look at it unfold right in front of me. You know, turns out there's probably a reason we do everything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. But, Let's hope there are good reasons too. Yeah. Know? Well, I think pointing again, the charitable nature of there are good reasons these other members of the Christian family are doing things the way they're doing. Correct. I've been a part of Anglican churches in the past where there were no good Baptist churches to be a part of. And mm-hmm. I went forward and mm-hmm. I've been to, you know, mm-hmm. priest's ordination in the Anglican church and have been served communion. And mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing to be welcomed into a different tradition. Mm-hmm. So as someone who's had the benefit of an open table at a church that wasn't my own. I appreciate it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that we do it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's, I love what we do. Mm-hmm. I'm proudly in Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a lot of respect for what other members of the family of God are doing too. Absolutely. You know, when I, every year I lead this tour of Rome, you know, for uh, our church, and it's a biblical, historical trek, uh, pilgrimage through the eternal city, you know. And I've had people ask me, "Wow, why do why do you take a bunch of Baptists to Rome? You know what what are you doing?" Well, you know, if you think about it, um, there's no other city in the world like Rome. Um, it's uh, it's, it's the uh, first of all, it it's the place where both Paul and Peter were martyred. So, mm. two two of the most famous. Would we say the two most famous Christians probably who've ever lived? Um, I think they outstrip Billy Graham. Yeah, I think so. And uh, maybe would give Mary credit. Maybe Mary, Mary Peter, Paul, and Mary. And it uh, turns <laughs> out they fared very well. They all fare well in Rome. But um, you know, first of all, there's a lot of biblical history there. You know, these early Christians were we know were in Rome. They received. Paul's grandest letter, if you think about it. And then they received Paul's visit and Paul's in prison there. Peter's martyred there, crucified there, you know, just outside the the walls of Rome. So you've got that biblical heritage there, and then you've just got the whole kind of the span of Western civilization through Rome, you know, the whole understanding of, of government and uh, so much um, engineering and architectural displays are, are there. But then you also just have the history of Christianity just basically lived out in front of you architecturally, if you will, and artistically and uh, and physically. You can walk these streets where these pilgrims walked. And so, but what, it, what we do though when we're there is we talk about some of these very things that you and I have just talked about. We talk about, so how did all this happen? How, look at these massive churches in Rome uh, modeled on the basilicas, you know, of the Roman Empire, um, and the whole idea of of the sectioning of the empire into dioceses, you know, that was mm. that was Diocletian's invention, and the church will embrace that, and um, and then the whole understanding of power and authority, and the centralization of power and authority, and the and the 
the centralization, if you will, and unification of theology. All of those are Roman ideas, you know, that were, were, were that were that were learned from Imperial Rome, if you think about it. So it's the perfect place to me to take a bunch of Baptists because you can learn so much about the history of our faith, get connected to two of our greatest Christians who ever lived, and also take in the grand sweeping history of the church. And then you can stand at St. Peter's, even though it's the new St. Peter's, and try to imagine what Martin Luther must have thought, you know, when he mm-hmm. came there on a pilgrimage and he stood at the old St. Peter's and 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 just really, truly decided that, you know, there's this has to change. There's there's this is good. But it could be better. But it could be better. And so to me it's the it's the perfect place to go. That's why I love doing it. So <laughs> well, thank you for your time and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this has been a 40 minute. Yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> Happy Advent. Happy Advent. <laughs> you got two theology nerds talking about it. But thanks for listening, everyone. listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening.